the word of God where it says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them into the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the, for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this, on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing at the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, 
I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Thanks Carl. Well, it's uh, great, isn't it, to uh, welcome Susan back and, uh, and sad to see Josh go. It uh, reminded me after the embarrassing twang of, uh, uh, of Susan's accent that um, the lovely distinguished tone of, uh, of a proper English accent and um, reminded me of one of my great ambitions in life, which is to be able to say holy uh, without, without it being ostentatious. Uh, can I just, before we go on, draw your attention? There's a number of these DVDs out on the uh, the book trolley. Uh, they are documentaries, kind of one-hour documentaries of a guy uh, working for a mission organisation who visits various countries and sees the circumstances in those different countries. This one, he visits China. And they're great if your growth group is looking for something to do for one week in particular. Great to sit down and watch that. Or school holidays is coming up. Uh, great to, uh, to grab one of those and to watch that. Uh, This is a great encouragement. So let me commend those to you. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we ask that as we uh, uh, settle now to think about your word, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, speak to us by your Holy Spirit uh, and that you would build us up in a holy faith. Uh, We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's easy to be overwhelmed, I think, by the book of Acts. Uh, It's an exciting book. Uh, The the gospel is spreading. The church is on fire. People are loving each other deeply and sharing everything they have. Ananias and Sapphira uh, pretend to kind of be Christians and then are judged by God shockingly. Christians are being persecuted for speaking up about their faith. Uh, It's an overwhelming book. Life, frankly, is overwhelming enough at times, though, that perhaps you wonder why we need an extra dollop uh, of being overwhelmed from the book of Acts. Well, in that setting, I think the end of chapter 5 that Ben just read to us is so encouraging. It is, if you like, a kind of an oasis of refreshment after the disturbing events of Ananias and Sapphira. Now that might sound a little bit strange because after all this chapter is about being locked up and being put in prison. But in some ways that's what makes the record in this chapter of what God has done so powerful because in the midst of great difficulty, God's power and goodness are evident. It's an account of God's power and goodness, not in the absence of that difficulty, but when things are at their most trying. 
The passage starts in verse 12 to 16 with a brief reminder of the triumph of God. God has empowered his apostles to heal the sick, to preach the good news uh, about Jesus, and day by day, that gospel is having its effect. People are turning to Jesus, trusting in him, being saved. But it's that very success which is causing the problems. The religious leaders see the successful ministry of uh, the apostles and they're jealous because of it. And so they arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. The same thing happened already a little while ago. Peter and John, you might remember, healed the cripple uh, on the way up to the temple and they were thrown in jail for the night. But this time during the night, an angel come, uh, an angel of God comes and releases the apostles. He sets them free, but rather than telling them to flee, uh, sets them free, rather than telling them to flee uh, and for their lives, uh, he tells them to go back to the temple and to keep preaching the gospel. What unfolds in the Sanhedrin then is almost comical, uh, the events that go on. The religious leaders are all gathered together, they're all there in their kind of their regal attire, uh, gathered to have the apostles brought in. They send the guards to bring them in. The guards go to the prison cell and they can't find anyone there. The cells are locked, the guards are still there at the door, but there's no one in, in, in the cell it begins to look slightly embarrassing for the religious leaders. But it gets worse. Then someone comes in and reports that the people that they're looking for are the very people who are now back in the temple courts doing the ministry that they are trying to stop. Verse 25, then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. These events are almost mocking the religious leaders. They tried to stamp out the spread of the gospel. They even put the apostles in prison. Imagine how dispiriting uh, it would be for the apostles and for the early Christians to hear that the the church leaders, that the men entrusted with spreading the, the news of the gospel, to hear that those people had been thrown into prison. What would you think? You'd think to yourself, crumbs. What, what hope do we have now? These are the people that Jesus has trained and entrusted with the gospel and they've been rounded up and they've been thrown in prison. But bars and chains could not stop the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, he might be changed, but God's word is not chained. God's power is more powerful than the opposition of the religious leaders. There are great stories uh, from church history of people being miraculously freed from prison. Uh, In the book, Don Cormack's book, uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields, he tells a number of stories about miraculous escapes from prison. He tells of a group of men imprisoned for their faith. And every day the guards would come and say to them, stop believing in Jesus. Uh, And they'd say, no, we're not going to stop believing in him. We're not going to stop trusting him. And the guards would tell them, well... If you don't, you're going to stay here until you die. And then one day, all of a sudden, the guards came, they opened the gates, they let them out with no explanation, no further comment, to go back to their families. On another occasion, a couple were imprisoned. They were the only prisoners left. Everybody else had been killed, murdered. 
And to cut a long story short, the uh, guards offered a deal to set them free for a ransom. Their family gathered the money for the ransom. They paid it to the guards. They, the guards set them free. And as they were leaving, the guards, one of the guards came running after them with the money, the ransom money, to hand back and said, well, we don't want your money. In those days, the work of the gospel in Cambodia was so small and so delicate. Anything could stamp it out, it would seem. And yet God's power was more powerful than the opposition of the people fighting against the gospel. God's power prevailed and the gospel was not stamped out. And yet as many stories as there are about miraculous deliverance from prison and difficult situations of all kinds, as many as those stories that there are, there are other stories where there's no deliverance. Stories of people who served out the full length of their term in prison. Stories where people were martyred for the faith. And I think it's important to realise that while here in chapter 5 God sets the apostles free, back in chapter 4 he didn't do that. Here in chapter 5 they don't even spend the night in jail because they're set free. But back in chapter 4 they did. God didn't intervene in a dramatic way. So whatever God is doing here, whatever else we take from this chapter, it can't be that what God does here is, it can't be that that's always something that he does. I think we lose focus if we don't grasp that the reason here for the miraculous deliverance was not personal protection, but the advance of the gospel. Why were they released? They were released in order to preach the gospel. It's astonishing, isn't it, actually, that the release from prison takes up all of about half a sentence. Luke isn't even interested in the how it happened or... What he's interested in, the fact, is that they go back to the temple and they keep preaching the gospel. God sometimes frees people from prison to advance the gospel and sometimes God leaves people in prison to advance the gospel as well. In Philippians, Paul says that his imprisonment served to promote the gospel because he had an opportunity to share the gospel with the palace guards, which he would never have received as a free man. I love it that people are trying to stop the gospel and God is making it spread. He's using their actions to actually do the very opposite of what they were trying to do. It's like throwing water on an oil fire. And it just, it just spreads. Everything catches fire. That's what opposition to the gospel is like. God uses those actions for his ends to make the gospel grow. Well, as we face uncertain times in our country, please believe that God's miraculous power is greater than the opposition that we might face. But actually the release from prison that, uh, through God's angel is only one of two miraculous interventions in this chapter. The apostles are finally brought before the religious leaders and they have another opportunity to preach the gospel and that makes the religious leaders even more furious so that they want to put the apostles to death. They want to execute them. At that point... 
the respected leader Gamaliel steps in and he manages to convince the others to let the apostles go free. Now, Gamaliel was a well-respected Pharisee. He was the grandson of uh, a famous rabbi uh, and he was uh, Paul's teacher, the Apostle Paul's teacher. Having Gamaliel on your side is a little bit like having uh, Jeffrey Robertson, QC, uh, turn up to defend you in court. Not simply because Jeffrey Robertson is a legal expert, but because being an atheist, he's playing for another team. Gamaliel's unexpected defence of the apostles is another great gift from God. It might not be as spectacular as letting someone out of prison, but it's no less remarkable that an opponent should stand up to defend them and argue their case. You and I may never have the doors of a prison open for us, but perhaps we will see support from unexpected quarters. Support for, for, uh, for Christians from people who are usually implacably opposed to Christianity. Political decisions that come out of left field, which encourage the preaching of the gospel. Unexpected results in the courts that enable the gospel to keep going forward. I think we already see those things all the time. I think we see unexpected support and unexpected victories for the cause of the gospel. I remember, remember once someone telling me they went to a party that was full of artsy people, uh, you know, so they were typically left-wing uh, and anti-Christian. Uh, that's a bit unfair, but, but that's what the, the shape of this party was. Uh, and these people were mocking uh, this friend of mine who was a Christian, and they were mocking Christianity. And it was their atheist friend who actually came out and started batting for the Christian team and defending Christians and defending Christianity. It's remarkable, isn't it? But that's a great gift of God. More often than not, we think, well, that's a happy coincidence, isn't it? But actually, those things are precious gifts from God for the advance of the gospel. So we see God's remarkable deliverance uh, both in the miraculous escape from prison and we see it in the unexpected defence from Gamaliel. But in his defence of the apostles, Gamaliel also latches on to a truth which uh, girds this whole chapter. In his speech, he reminds these uh, religious leaders of two other historical figures, Thutis and Judas, both men who led movements, both men who called people to follow them, but both of those men and their movements petered out. They came to nothing. And Gamaliel says that the same thing will happen to Christianity if it isn't from God. And if Christianity is from God, then Christianity will succeed. The gospel will succeed. And these leaders in opposing that will just be putting themselves up against God. They'll just be fighting against God. He says in verse 38, In the present case I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Luke uses Gamaliel's words to make his own point. That is, if something is from God, it will succeed. That doesn't mean 
if something does succeed, it must be from God. That's our old friend, the fallacy of affirming the consequent. That is, if it's cloudy, uh, sorry, if it's raining, it must be cloudy. Uh, it's cloudy, therefore it must be raining. That doesn't, that doesn't work out. Uh, we do that all the time. That logic is flawed. What Luke means us to understand is this. We know that the gospel is not of human origin. We know that. We know the gospel is from God. And so we also know that whatever happens, this work of God will not fail. We know the gospel will succeed because people are not ultimately fighting against us, but people ultimately are fighting against God. We tend, I think, uh, to take opposition to the gospel very personally. So we're hurt when people oppose us, when people make fun of us, when people mock uh, Christianity, when people uh, make fun of us for ordering our lives around Jesus. And in a sense, that's okay. It's kind of it's okay to be hurt. It's right to be hurt. It's painful. But the unintended consequence of that, I think, is that we tend to think that people are fighting against us. And so we think that the fight is then ours to win. They hate me, is what we think. They're trying to stop me. But Luke is saying, no, they're actually hating God and they're actually fighting against God, not against you. And that means it's not your battle to win, but God's battle to win. They can't defeat you because they're not fighting against you. (laughs) They're fighting against God and God can't lose. We end up feeling like that one puny soldier being attacked by the whole world. It's like in those movies, you know, when that, you know, the, the ineffectual hero uh, is lined up against the great army and all of a sudden, you know, they're, and they're panicking. And all of a sudden the army starts to scatter and flee in the other direction. He thinks, yes, they're afraid of me. And he turns around to behind him is this, you know, enormous monster or some other army that has crept up over the hill. We think we're on our own fighting the war against the world, but we're not. They're fighting against God, and God is fighting for us. Throughout history, people have tried to stamp out the good news, and they've tried to stop people believing in Jesus, but it's never worked. Because those people were fighting against God the God who made the heavens and the earth and who raised Jesus from the dead. Persecution of Christians in the early centuries under the Romans didn't stop the spread of Christianity. The church was persecuted on and off for about 250 years. Imagine that, 250 years of persecution. The Emperor Nero imprisoned and executed Christians. The Emperor Domitian oppressed Christians who refused to treat him as God. The Emperor Diocletian put out four uh, edicts to try and stop Christianity. Churches were burned, people were executed. It didn't stop the gospel. 
In communist Russia, there were major attempts to stamp out Christianity. And yet when the Iron Curtain fell, people discovered all these Christians there that no one had ever known about. And the same thing happened in China. I mentioned before that book by Don Cormack uh, on Christianity in Cambodia. The title alone, I think, tells the story of the church in that country. Killing fields, living fields. The church was brutalised. The whole country was brutalised under the Khmer Rouge. And yet in that oppressive, evil regime, amidst that, God was building the church. The church was blossoming and growing and blooming. 90% of the church and virtually all of its leaders were wiped out. And yet even still, God kept the gospel going. I've said uh, quite a lot lately, I think we're facing interesting and difficult times as people who follow Jesus. What will the outcome of that be? Will we suffer, perhaps? Will churches close? Maybe More likely than not, as in much of the world, the problem will not be violence but marginalisation. Difficulty getting jobs or holding jobs or running businesses in line with biblical principles or just that people don't really want to know you. But even if that does happen, will the church come to an end? No, it won't. Will the gospel start spreading? No. Because God always wins. We may be stopped, we might be put in prison and not miraculously released, but the gospel will go on. Well, Gamaliel's speech persuades the Sanhedrin, not enough to free the apostles without flogging them, uh, which they do just to be safe, before letting them go and commanding them not to preach the gospel again. What is stunning, I think, and challenging, last of all, is the apostles' reaction. We're told in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They didn't go into hiding. They didn't mope. They didn't complain that the world was turning against them. They didn't, you know, encourage each other, stiff up a lip to just grit their teeth and bear it. They rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus said they should do in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We don't naturally rejoice, I don't think. We don't naturally rejoice when people persecute us or make fun of us for following Jesus. But Jesus commands us to rejoice. It's unnatural to do it, but we need to learn to do it. Jesus doesn't say, and when they mock you, mock them back. He doesn't say, write letters to the editor about it and say how unfair it is and how unbalanced it is. He doesn't say, contact your local politician. He says, rejoice. Rejoice. 
I remember a friend of mine once had made friends with a cafe owner. And as part of the cafe, uh, this guy opened up, this cafe owner opened up a small art gallery uh, in the back. And uh, one day he'd, he'd got some artwork in there and he asked this friend of mine what he thought of one of the pictures. Uh, my friend looked at it and he said, well, I think some Christians might be offended by it. You know, might want to be a bit careful. Next day in the paper, headline front page, pastor, you know, <laughs> demands painting be torn down, you know, or something like that. He felt betrayed and angry at being misrepresented, at being misunderstood. And people in the church were angry and writing letters to the editor. And I said to my friend, you shouldn't be surprised and hurt. This is what Jesus said would happen. And he said you should rejoice because you've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. We don't feel like rejoicing, but that actually doesn't matter because of what Jesus says that we should do. What a great gift it is to share in the sufferings of Jesus, to experience just a taste of what it was that he went through. I thought to myself this morning, it's so funny, isn't it? Every time Easter comes around, and even when it's not Easter, we try and work ourselves up into a frenzy to try and understand what it is that Jesus went through. We want to plumb the depths of the cross. We want to understand the pain that he went through. And so we, we use words and we find songs to try and make ourselves feel what it must have been like, what the cost must have been like. And yet here is God's precious gift of persecution of suffering, and when it comes that gift that God gives us to understand the sufferings of Christ and when it comes, rather than rejoice, we complain. What a precious gift of God, not only to share in the glory of Jesus, but also to taste the suffering, to taste the love of Christ and all that he went through to redeem us from our sins. We live in interesting times and we don't know the shape of Christianity in Australia or the West, uh, what that will be in the next few decades. But whatever happens, I hope you rejoice when you suffer for the gospel. It might just be someone making fun of you. But I hope you rejoice. I hope you rejoice that God has considered you worthy to suffer as Jesus suffered. And I hope you're encouraged that whatever happens, God will win. And the gospel will go out and Jesus will return and nothing can stop that. And if you trust in Jesus, when Jesus wins, you win too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mighty power uh, which opens the doors of prisons, which causes enemies to speak in our defence, 
your power which protects and preserves, which heals and raises to life. And thank you, Lord, that no amount of opposition, however fierce, however prolonged, however persistent, no opposition can defeat you and your plans and purposes in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we are safe in your hands by faith in him. So, Father, we pray that as we face uncertain times, as others in the world, our brothers and sisters face uncertain times, we ask that you would encourage us to know your great power and your great love. And, Lord, when difficult times come, help us to rejoice, to rejoice in tasting something of the love that you have shown for us in Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.